What an honor it is, Lord, to just stand in this holy place and for all of us to just gather knowing that apart from you, we can't get what we need to get. But, but Lord, grant us power today, like we prayed last week. Give us power to be able to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ and not to just grasp it, Lord, but to know this love in full measure, Lord. It's our desire, it's our longing. And Lord, we trust that you want to do that. We trust that you will do that because that's who you are. Maybe as we just begin, just close your eyes and just say something very simple. Lord, I love you. And I receive your love for me. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, I wanted to start that way because if you were here last week, we launched a new series called What Child Is This? And I started by telling everybody in the room that I wanted to give you something. I wanted to give you some good news and some bad news. This is going to be a little bit participatory. Um, I said, uh, anybody remember what the good news is? Both of you? Great. I really nailed it last week. Um, Good news is you are loved. All right? Bad news is that for some reason for us humans, it's really hard to believe, you can put it back up there, it's really hard to believe, nope, that's not it, the one before, Um, they are thankful for that, but that's coming later, yeah, it's really hard to believe the good news, right? And so there's a, a a strain inside of us to get to the good news, and this week as I've just kept meditating on the love of God, I've just been overwhelmed with God's love for you and thought I'd even just give you some more good news, just through a little, very simple thing. But I have to take you back into the preacher's journey. Remember the last year, last week I said the preacher's journey is around Christmas. We're like, oh Lord, how are they going to hear this for the very first time? But there's also another part of the preacher's journey. It's where on Saturday night we're sitting with our spouse and we're somewhat freaking out, wondering if anything we're going to say tomorrow is going to make any sense. Is it going to connect? Is this ridiculous? Is it too short? Is it too long? Well, actually, that's not true. I never wonder if it's too short, neither does Jimmy. That's a Vincent problem, that's not a us problem. We're like, is it gonna go too long? Lord, help them. And by God's grace and Blair's grace, y'all got out on time last week because she helped me cut it down. Y'all would've been there to about three. But there was this one part we kept wrangling over and I was like, I just don't know this is gonna fit. She's like, I don't know either. And uh, it was this part about shame. And so I wasn't sure it was gonna fit, so I went to our service coordinator before the service destiny and I said, I'm gonna try this and if it works, In the nine, I'll do it in the 11. If not, I'll know what to cut. Don't freak out. I can make it even shorter. And she said, great. And then I shared the the part that we shared about there being this gap of our own making, and we're all caught in this shame. And here's what shame is and what it's not. Well, then between services, I'm out in the foyer, and I was just kind of enamored with how many people stopped me and said the same thing over and over. I didn't know that stuff about Herod. I also didn't know I dealt with shame. And you gave me a lot of language today. And, I, and then the next person went, hey, I didn't know that's about Herod, but I, I didn't know I dealt with shame. And just over and over, it was like God was just reminding me, you almost cut something, but I was working behind the scenes because I know what the people need. And I just so overwhelmed because as a preacher, you're like, thank God that you will use us and you would just kind of take our weakness. And then you're going to be like, no matter what, they are going to walk out of here convinced. I love them. I enjoy them even more than they know. Carl's going to try to screw it up. I'm going to bring it back and we're going to make sure you get what you need. Isn't God good? I mean, even at Christmas on Fort, people were saying, hey, that's about shame. Thank you. I needed that. And so I just love that. Okay. That's the good news. The bad news is it just doesn't always feel that way. (laughs) 
It's just hard to experience this sometime. And maybe especially at Christmas when everything is so beautiful and magical and you've got a violin. Don't you wish he just followed you around all during Christmas just playing that? Stressful at Walmart buying gifts. Hey, just hit it. And you know, and you're just right back there. That's how I felt last Christmas, 2021. We, my family, we'd just gone to a beautiful Christmas Eve service. We came home. Blair did what she always does, just makes everything magical. And we're having this meal. I think we were watching Elf. And every time he jumps on that Christmas tree, I just, you know, amen. And just having this beautiful moment. I'm looking forward to time with my family the next day. And if I'm honest, I wake up, and this is kind of emotional. Gosh, Lord, help me get through this. But I wake up about 3.30. I have a really bad nightmare and I am, by 4 a.m., pacing back and forth in my living room going, this is not what Christmas is supposed to be, God. Like, we're all singing Silent Night, but all is not calm, all is not bright, and I am, am struggling here, and I didn't know what to do, so I literally just went outside and made a fire, because last year you could do that at this time. Now it's like 90 degrees, but I made a fire, and I literally just thought I needed to distract my mind, and so I just grabbed this book off the coffee table, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for Max Licato. I've read some of his books, but most of his books just make great coffee table holders in my house or on the bathroom, uh, toilet reading. And I just reached over and I just grabbed it. It's like, I'll just distract myself. And I just start reading Max's book, You Were Made for This Moment. And I'm not just a few pages into his book. And he asked this question, do you believe your moment of relief is coming? And I just about threw the book in the fire, if I'm really honest. Like I, I was just like, that is not what I'm experiencing. That's not what I'm feeling. And I get to page eight, and he says this one very, very simple phrase, God need not be loud to be strong. And I just, you know, teared up and, you know, let God meet me in that place. You can tell it was pretty raw because my emotion this morning. And I had this flashback to a moment where Blair and I went to a mass together. I'd never been to one. I wanted to go to one. And we went to this mass. And this, the, the priest was talking about feeling God, a meeting with God when it's hard to meet with God. And after the service, I do what I always do. I go straight for the leader, <laughs> make that connection. And Blair was like, of course, you're going to make us stay long and talk to this guy. And I go up there and I tell him, hey, it's been a tough season. Your sermon was really a blessing. I'm a pastor and just wanted to say thank you. And he reached out. And did something I don't think has ever happened to me before. He literally just reaches out, just kind of strong dude. He grabs my arm like this, and he just kind of pulled me close, and he just stood there. And I'm like staring at him, and he's staring at me. Dude, I don't know about you. I don't do that a lot. And it's moving into awkward space, and he just put his hand on my chest, and he just stood there, just kind of knowing. Just... And I finally just said, thank you, sir. He never said a word. He just kind of took my arm. And eventually I, I went and I moved on. And I was like, Blair's like over there taking pictures of me with my, <laughs> the, my priest. Um, and uh, I just thought, I just left and I, I don't even, I never heard his voice other than the sermon. And I'm walking away, I'm like, Lord, this summarizes my life. Like I'm trying to meet with you. I cannot meet with you. I'm trying to get you to speak. What do I need to do? What sign do I need to do to give you, to get you to speak, to move, to move this dry season or whatever? Because I'm like, I'm doing my spiritual disciplines. I pulled out every spiritual trick in the book. It's whatever worked in the past, it's not working. Again, maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there in that moment. I said last week, if you are not experiencing God's presence, come back this week. Don't feel a lot of shame. Just come back and we'll talk about it. And that's what we are going to talk about because that priest taught me something that I really needed to catch. And I didn't catch it then. It was more in retrospect. He was teaching me something that I now call 
how to fight silence with silence. He told me how to fight silence with silence, meaning I'm feeling this silence from God and I'm not connecting. And instead of trying to make something happen, which is the Christian experience, right? I'm not experiencing his tangible presence. I don't understand his direction. I'm not hearing his voice. Then we start to rise up and especially someone like me, like I know how to knock down this wall. I'll go after that wall. But it could be that God wants you to not go after that wall because it's not going to move the way it used to move. And so he wants you to sit and rest in silence and rest in his affirmation. And it might feel awkward at best, painful at most, but he's just wanting to love you like a child. So the message today is if you've ever felt that silence, if you're in it right now, if you're just, you know, or you, or you will one day if, if you don't, then my hope is today that you'll get some language for what God may be doing in the midst of that. Because our question is, God, are you apathetic about this? Are you absent? So my prayer is that this message might give you some language. And, and these are the two things I'm hoping you'll get out of this. Number one, I'm hoping you will know you're not going crazy. And number two, God is up to something. All right? Actually, let's just put this in the personal. I want you to say it with me. Say that first thing. I'm, one, I'm not going crazy. God is up to something. And some of you just need to get that in your soul, but you just need to realize he's up to something. It's just definitely not what you expect. And so if you, the Christmas story is so perfect because we feel the magic of, 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 of shepherds and you know, Jesus and all the you know, kids stories and all that. But there's also a lot of chaos in this story. And I want to take you into that chaos by looking at the life of Joseph today, the life of David, and this child. And so that's what we're going to look at as we do this, start this, uh, do this part two of this series. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and I want you to see where this starts. And uh, it's, you probably have heard this before. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. Now, the Bible verses move pretty quick. A lot of Bible verses, they move pretty quick. And you have to kind of pause and realize there, this is not like quick. There's like lots of days and weeks going on, even though it moves pretty quick to the next part. Remember, they just got engaged. Like December's a time where a lot of other people are getting engaged. We celebrate those. A lot of us today, you might know the Andrade family or the Gorman family. Their kids got engaged. We love them. They're getting married at four. It's been a journey. We're excited about the wedding finally getting here. There's a lot of celebration that's going on, and we know what that feels like, right? But then, everybody say, but then. The rest of the verse goes on, and it says, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I meditated on this verse more than anything else maybe this week, just going, I mean, what would God have to do 25 years ago to get me to believe Blair? If like she came to me and said, hey, babe, last night I went to the prayer room at Antioch. God met me there. I'm like, that is awesome. What happened? I'm pregnant. I'd be like, don't ever go there ever again. Right? I just, I can't imagine this moment. And I can't imagine, though, the emotional upheaval Joseph is most likely feeling because he's pretty much torn between two different things that he has to do now. One, he's got to believe Mary's crazy story. Or two, he has to divorce her publicly, knowing this will cause scandal, especially in a small village in a little town, all right? Now, this is really unfair to Joseph. How did he get to be in this situation? I don't know what he prayed, but I wonder if it was something like, hey God, I've been faithful to you. I was faithful to Mary. 
I've done everything you've asked me to do. Where are you? Now I've got two, I've got to believe my wife who's gone a little crazy and God met her in the prayer room or I've got to divorce her publicly. Why publicly? Because if he does it publicly, he's removed from the scandal. No one will believe it's his child and he gets to be justified from the scandal. So he's going to have to do something publicly that he may not want to do. And so he may just be going, wow, my wife, I mean, my fiance, she's either lost her mind or lost her purity. Lord, what are you doing? Now, ladies, I do see you out there. I'm sure you're like, oh yeah, that's real fair to Mary. Like she was asking for this as a 13, 14, 15 year old kid. And you're right. It's unfair to her too. She did nothing wrong. Yet she's facing potential shame as an unwed mother. And worse than that, by their law, Joseph can have her condemned to die by stoning. So she would have been justified to pray pray something like, hey God, I've done my part. Doesn't seem like you're doing yours. And my fiance is not sure he wants anything to do with me. But moments like this reveal a philosophy that's playing inside of us that we don't even know is playing. And it's something along the lines of God blesses good people and God punishes bad people. And there is some truth to that. There's some scripture to that. There's ways of living God blesses, ways of living God does not. The only problem is that's a basis level of faith. And if you stay there, then you get transactional in your walk with God. I'll do this, God, and then you'll do that. I'll push this lever, you'll unlatch that. And that works until it doesn't. And there's a moment of suffering or pain or upheaval comes your way. And then all of a sudden you do your part and then God doesn't do his part. And we're left to wonder what is going on there. It's breaking down. And the script of Mary and Joseph's life is breaking down. And right here, we tend to make a lot of bad decisions. This is where people walk away from God and the church and they're like, hey, you know what? You know what? I did my part. He didn't come through. Watch what Joseph does in verse 19. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. This is actually pretty amazing for a couple of reasons. At base level, he doesn't want someone to feel disgrace and that's beautiful. I think our day and age, we could all, you know, wish that we all did that for others and others did it for us. But I think what's, there's something deeper here. You see, when in their day, when there was an exchange to be um, engaged, the family of the bride would arrange for a dowry, a price to be given to the family of the groom. And there's this dowry, this bride price that's going to be received unless something happens that would break that covenant. So by Mary breaking the covenant and getting pregnant, Joseph, if he goes public with this, he still gets to keep the bride price because he did not break this agreement. She did, or at least that's how everybody's seeing it. So when he makes this decision, I'm not going to expose her. He's showing his goodness, yes, in that he does not want to expose her to public disgrace. He's also making a statement. I'll just walk away from the bride price and I'll walk away and I won't even have you as a wife, but I'm willing to do that so that you don't face the shame that you're going to face. So a lot of character you see in Joseph here. And it explains maybe why God was like, I think I want you to play kind of stepson to my son, Jesus, right? He's, you start to see it. You know that, I know that, but he's probably not seeing it very clearly, all right? Now, I wish that just was like, isn't that beautiful? 
But then this next part is really at the heart of what we're trying to go for. Verse 20 says, but just when he resolved to do this, and if your Bible, there's no big gap. I'm sure it goes right to the next line. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Now, I've never noticed this before. But when you're studying for sermons, you start noticing things you haven't studied, noticed before. And I thought, we don't know what Joseph prayed, but don't you know in this one sentence, but just when he resolved to do this, it is loaded with how much prayer did Joseph put into this? How much did he toss and turn and pace back and forth and talk to his parents and deliberate and go, God, what do I do about this situation? I mean, how am I getting public, private? You know, he's, he goes through all of that tension and we have no record that God spoke to him. From what we see in the book, every time God spoke, it said, and Joseph did what he was told to do. So we know that if God would have spoken, he would have done it. But God doesn't speak clearly. He makes his decision. He's finally resolved. And then an angel of the Lord appears and God speaks and says, don't be afraid. So this actually just began to shock me as I was reading this. And here's why. Because I love reading the Bible verses that say, and Jesus touched this person and immediately. God spoke light, there was light. That's what I like to live in. There's a lot of verses about immediately. Great Bible study, if you've never done that, do it in the book of Mark, beautiful place. However, this is one of those places we don't see immediately. We see wrangling and tension and chaos and not a lot of heavenly peace that we just sang about. And then finally in that moment, then afterwards God speaks. Does God not know that if he'll speak up here, we, he, he gets to end all the madness for Joseph? He must not have known that. So what's he doing in your life? In your verse 20 gap, when you're wrangling about your finances, like Jimmy just talked about, about your business, about your kid, about your health, about your life, about your decisions, about where is God, the distance you feel, where, what is he doing in the verse 20 gap of your life? Again, it feels like he's apathetic and absent, like, oh yeah, I forgot to say, by the way, an angel of the Lord's gonna come and then don't be afraid. Like, is that what happened? There must be more to this. And maybe what God is doing in Joseph is what he's doing in you. He may be preparing to utilize this very messy middle because he wants to put something in Joseph that if he would have done it immediately would have short-circuited what he wanted to give to this man. So as a result, he's going to let him live there in a little bit more tension than he would probably have preferred even for his son to do because there's something deeper he wants to do. Now, you and I know the verses that come after this. If you don't know it, here's how the story ends. Pretty amazing. Take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph awoke from, the sleep, he, from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. Red bow, all tied up. Everything is awesome. The only problem is, back in verse 20, in the first part of that verse, we don't know what's happening. Joseph doesn't know what's happening. And he's in a pretty tough spot. What do you do in the gap at verse 20 in your life is my question. About seven years ago, I found myself kind of a, a tough 
situation. I was seeking out some counsel, and a, a friend of mine said, have you ever heard of a man named Walter Brueggemann? And I said, I had not. He said, he's an Old Testament scholar. My recommendation is you read everything from Walter Brueggemann you can get your hands on. So I started just devouring this guy and learning that he was uh, just a fantastic scholar of the entire Old Testament, specifically of the Psalms. And he had uh, written a book called Praying the Psalms. And in the book, what he did is he began to say, if you read the Psalms, you will see the Psalms are a mirroring of the way your life goes. There's a rhythm to the Psalms that mirrors the rhythm of your life. And I had not seen that before. And so he basically described it as three conditions to, to human life. And he said, number one, there is orientation. Everything is going great. Then there is disorientation. Everything is upside down. And then there is a reorientation or what he also called a new orientation, which everything's been made new. Now, he made the point that there were psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, psalms of reorientation. And that's why it's hard sometimes when you're in a certain season of your life and your Bible reading brings you to one of the psalms that is not in that season, and it becomes very difficult. So you're just like, you know, just enjoying the peace and the river of God, and you're brought right to David saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you're like, I'm not... I don't, I don't really feel that right now, you know? Or you're in the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me place, you know? And you're just like, God, and he's just, and then David's just like, God is great all the time, all the time, God is great. And you're just like, he's not. And so Walter Brueggemann is basically saying, find the Psalms that line up to your life and then live there, pray there, get them inside of you and God will meet you and he'll build something deep inside of you in the midst of that place. And so I began to, to just dive into this and begin to see, wow, he's right. And David was such a gut-wrenching, emotional human being. Don't we love David? I mean, just, we need to heaven and all be like, thanks, bro. I mean, we're here a lot because of you. The guy was amazing, but he was also an emotional roller coaster. Can I get an amen? I mean, like he doesn't do have just Psalms of these things. He, sometimes in one Psalm, he does all of that, which is good because some of us do this all in one day too, right? Like, let's just take Psalm 40. A lot of us know that. Uh, you know the U2 song, you know, something. But anyway, verse four, happy are those who make the Lord their trust. Orientation. You know, everything's going great. Then verse, what do we got there? Verse 12, for evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Disorientation. Then towards the end, he says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say, God is great all the time, all the time. God is great. Just to see what David does, you know, he's making the point, you know, Brigham is helping make the point, but if you don't see what God's doing in all of this, you'll think you're going crazy. Let's examine this a little bit more and let's even see it through the lens of Joseph. So let's take orientation. All right, in orientation, this is the part where everything makes sense in your life and the world works as it should. And you're carrying a lot of peace because you love God and you know God loves you. You love people, people seem to like you. And there's just a sense of peace. Life is coherent. All is well with your soul and Joseph just got engaged to Mary and life could not be better. But life's not always coherent. Disorientation comes in. Now the world feels upside down. You're in a pit you can't get out of. And, you know, life's changed in some way. Maybe there's loss or maybe there's a death or maybe there's some circumstances in your life that occur and you're just like, 
wow, I just didn't see myself here. I, I didn't know this is the way my life was going to go. Maybe your health takes a hit. Your parents' health takes a hit. Your child is in a predicament. And your fiance finds out she's pregnant in the prayer room. <laughs> right? Now here, just so you know, if, you, if you've not been there, let me tell you what the main prayer is that we all pray if, in disorientation. It's just three words, real simple. God, fix it. And when you're really ticked off, God, fix it now. That's what you pray when you're in disorientation, right? Anybody been there? Okay. But then there's reorientation. And Brigham also calls this the new orientation. And it's a season of healing because and everything's been made new. It's reconciliation. It often catches you by surprise because you're like, I don't know what I did to get here. I don't know what happened. But all of a sudden I'm looking back and I'm realizing, oh, I was just in a season of disorientation. Didn't even really realize it. I didn't even understand what God was doing here, but oh, wow, I've got some battle scars here now as a result of this. And I don't know why God did things the way he did, but man, there is some intimacy between us I did not know could have existed. And now I'm realizing that the world I thought I was building and what I was walking towards, it's gone. It doesn't exist, but God had a different plan for me. I'm helping raise the son of God. Again, a lot of this doesn't make sense, and I'm not trying to be trite with the difficulties of disorientation, I promise you. Just trying to say, Brigham's right, <laughs> and the Bible makes it clear. And here's the question. How many of y'all wouldn't mind being in orientation? Just show of hands. You wouldn't mind being in, thanks, God's great. Maybe some of you are at orientation right now. Who wants disorientation? Kind of, kind of weird, right? You're like, hey, can we pray for that person who wants that? All right. Reorientation, anybody up for that? Oh yeah. So the hands are all going up for number one and number three. So the question young people are asking is, what can we do to bypass two? Be grateful, spend time with God. You know, what do we need to do? And the old people are like, eh. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Jesus said in this life, you're gonna have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. You're like, I know, but I've marked that out. So the next question becomes, okay, well, if I'm here, how do I move to here? Could someone please give me the formula to get from disorientation to reorientation? All right, what's, what's the formula? And if you follow Jesus for a while, then you know probably where to start. Start where David started. Search me, oh God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. God, is there some sin in me I'm not sure about? Because if there is, could you expose it? I don't want this. Something's not right. Or maybe it's not sin. Maybe it's just like you're looking back at your last semester and you're like, you know, I've just been, I've just drifted. I've been distracted by so much and I just need to get back to my first love again. And if that's where you are right now and that's the disorientation that you're feeling, then it's not easy necessarily, but the process is fairly simple. You just confess your sin to God. You repent and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I want to come back to first love. And just you make that step. You come back to him and you put some spiritual disciplines in your life to make sure you don't go off the rails and you will move from disorientation to reorientation most likely. The problem is, is that 90% of you knew that. And if you're in disorientation, you've already prayed that prayer and it feels like your things are still silent and you don't know what else to do. And if you prayed that prayer and you're like, okay, I've already done that. I don't think I've got anything hidden, Lord. But God, would you just speak? 
Okay, I guess not. So, okay, God, just speak. Just, if you'll point it out, I'll repent. Just do it. Or tell me what to do. Who do I marry God? Just point to her. I don't want to wait, do the whole game. Just point. I'll ask her. We'll call it done. Like, what do, do I do this business or not? Just, I'll be driving on 35, point to the building. I'll buy the building. I'll do it. This is not an obedience problem, God. This is a problem on your part. If you'll just speak, I'll do, I'm doing my part. You do your part. Am I with me here? And you're just living in this place of God. What's going on? Before, unfortunately, before you know it, we've done, you're realizing he's not speaking. I don't know what's going on and what can just unintentionally happen is something begins to sink inside of you. The thought becomes, I guess I've done something to deserve the distance I'm experiencing. And we're being punished. And we don't know what we did to deserve it. This can be a very shame-filled place. I do a class called Pause. It's a Life University class. I'm doing it again in uh, January, and we go after shame a good bit. And the amount of people that stopped me afterwards and said, I, I just thought I had done something and I just have been carrying that. And I love God. He's worthy of my life, but I haven't experienced him. And I had no idea. I was walking around with this heavy weight. I've done something to deserve the punishment I'm experiencing. And I guess I'll just never know what it is. This is my spiritual lot in life. And that's why we started by looking at Joseph and what did he do wrong? nothing. And so maybe we can learn a lesson from Joseph in that experience of verse 20 and see that maybe God is not punishing you. Listen closely. He may be removing his felt presence from you. Not his presence. He may be removing his felt presence from you so that he can attend to something very deep in you. And in that process, do a work of healing and impart something in you. He wants to give you. He knows you're going to need. And it's infinitely better than what you had imagined for you. And it's going to take some time to birth that in you and through you. And some of you came just for that one thought. Oh, he's not punishing me? He's just removing his felt presence so that I will get so desperate, lay on the floor like Jimmy did a few weeks ago and just say, here I am, God. Please come. And I need you to hear this because the temptation at disorientation is to just numb yourself. And, and if you're not careful over the holidays, you'll do that. Just, you know, one more drink or just one more hour on social media. You know, you're, you pick your numbing of choice and some are healthy and some are not healthy. And it can all just lead to unhealthy because I'm just numbing myself. And it does keep pain at bay if you do that. It just eventually keeps God at bay as well. And that's not what you want, right? And so if you, I, what, that's not what God's wanting to give to you. And so what he wants to do is he wants to comfort you. And I said this this summer, that you were made for comfort, you will settle for relief. And that's not what God wants for you. He doesn't want you to get the relief of numbing yourself. He wants to meet you deeply. That very famous Christmas prophecy that we often read um, says in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, for a child's been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders. Don't miss this. Don't read it like you've heard it before, like you've never read it before. And this one, if you call him Savior, this is who he'll be to you. He will be a wonderful counselor to you. He will be a mighty God for you. He will be an everlasting father for you, a prince of peace for you. So instead of getting 
numb this holiday season, you need to get honest with God. David honesty, gut-wrenching psalms of disorientation honesty. And I was, when I was in this kind of funk, I was talking with my counselor. I remember he just said, we're going to do a role play. I'm God. You're you. You just say it. Whatever you need to say to God, you say it to me. I was like, oh, that's weird. Okay. You know, in the back of my head, I'm like, all counselors are weird. So here we go. You know, I'm just, you know, we're weird. God, you're not coming through for me right now. I'm wondering if you're big enough for this. Now, I know you are. The word of God says that you are a mighty God and that your arm is not too short to save. But I, I'm not feeling it, Lord. And so I'm just asking that you would come and that you would reveal yourself to me. And I don't know what the timing's gonna be, but you said that God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness to be. And he just stopped me out there and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I remember he said, you just really pastored God really well. I said, what? He's like, you are the most appropriate person. He's like, I can tell you're a pastor. You're pastoring God the way you pastor your people. It's going to be tough, but God's going to be there. You know, you're kind of just going back and forth. Someone said these words to me. He said, if God needed you to pastor him and babysit his emotions, he's not God. Let's try this again. And my second time, I won't say what I said, but it was much more real. let you just imagine that for, for, for yourself. Some of you need what I need. I needed permission to get that honest. Some of you need that permission this holiday season to journal out what you really think and then go burn the journal just in case your kids read it. Like you just need to get it out. You need to go on some walks where you say things out in some fields, you know, that you're just like, I just let it all out. God, let's just keep this between us. You know, those kind of moments because that's what David did. How do we know David did that? Because his journals got documented forever. <laughs> he did not burn them. And I'm so grateful. A couple months ago, Blair and I got to go to this retreat at a monastery in Portland. It was amazing. And at this retreat, we got to learn from some Benedictine monks. And Benedictine monks pray six times a day. They pray the Psalms every time so that in their 40s and 50s, they will have the Psalms memorized and can be their theology that they cry out from. It was very humbling to be in their midst. But they bring us in and they do these kind of mantra chant things that they pray. And so it's like they'd be praying, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted above the nations. I will be lifted up in the earth. That's what you get used to. And you've got your little book and you open it up and they start going into Psalm 140. And I don't remember Psalm 140 and I can't sing the whole mantra chant for you. But all of a sudden I'm standing next to Blair. We're doing our mantra, our chant. And then we come across this, these verses in Psalm 140. They make their tongue sharp as a snake's, and under their lips is the venom of vipers. <laughs> Let burning coals fall on them. Let them be flung into pits, no more to rise. Say la, you know. <laughs> and I am coming unglued with the monks, and Blair's just elbowing me. She's like, we're with the Benedictine monks. This is not. And I look over at the leader and he's got his head down. He's cracking up because we're all thinking the same thing. We're most of us are pastors. We're like, we know what to do on Psalm 40, 140. We just put a little dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and you don't have to read all that stuff. And David's like, you're dot, dot, dot. Like, God, coals on their head, venom in their mouth. You know, he's just laying it out there. What's interesting is God doesn't correct him. 
There's no next chapter where David comes in, God comes in and says, hey, bro, went a little too far there. He's like, no, Selah. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> Man, I think God wants to move you from disorientation to orientation. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I know honesty with God. It's going to be something you really got to do during this time. So you might be great. And that'll do it. That'll do the trick. Then I move. I pull that lever. He'll do this. Man, I wish I could say that. What formula do you do to close that gap? More bad news. Nothing. There's no formula you can utilize. I mean, let's just take this for example. This page right here is the middle of your Bible between Malachi and Matthew. Some of us call it the four, it's been called the 400 years of silence, no recorded documentation of God speaking. And then we, Matthew 1 comes on the scene and an angels are showing up. What did the people of God do to turn the page? Like after 400 years, did they finally pull the lever God had been waiting for? It's called grace. They didn't deserve it at all. There's no formula to it. Why? Because God's putting something deep inside of you that takes time, and that's on his time. And you won't know until you'll get to the end, and you'll look back and be like, oh, God. This happened to me on Saturday morning. I just literally, I just broke down. I was like, God, you put a Max Licato book on a coffee table so that I could meet, and then you had a priest grab me and make me awkward, and then you had a monastery chant, and I just started going through, and I started weeping. I was like, Lord, Wow. I could have made some really bad decisions in that season. And you just held me fast. I don't know what I did to deserve that. I didn't. And if you're there and you're like, okay, but can you give me something? Then I'll give you something. Go back to what we did last week. How did Jesus to tell us to come? It's in the name of the series. How did Jesus say to come? He said to come like a child. Do we have any children around here? Oh, we just happen to have one. Backstage. It's amazing. It's amazing the magic of production. This is baby Jesus. Or we call him Javi. Okay? Hey, Javi. You want to say hi? Hi. Hey. You want to say hi to everybody? This is a real risk to have it bring you up here because you could scream and poop and all kinds of things. Okay. He was peaceful in our run through. Y'all are no longer listening to me. You are not listening to one thing I say. You are staring at this kid's mohawk thinking, I wish I had that. We do too. I want you to watch this trick. Javi, wave. Okay, he didn't do that. Okay, Javi, smile. Didn't do that. Walk. Hey, Rachel, he's going to take his first steps right now in front of everybody. Walk. Okay, he's not doing that. So far, this kid has done nothing I told him to do. Y'all are all like. <laughs> Maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, just come to me like a child. Helpless. Remember we said last week? Not innocent, noble, and sinless. Utterly dependent. I'm not going to pretty myself up, God. I'm dinged up. I'm scared. Here I am. If you want to love me, just come love me. See, when I asked him to do all those things, none of y'all, y'all all kind of giggled. Y'all knew where I was going because y'all know it's not his job to make anything happen. The only thing that would make y'all really freak out is if I dropped Javi. Y'all want to see that? 
No, you don't. And we're not going to do that. All right? It's not Javi's job to make anything happen. It's the parent's job to nurture this child and feed this child and hold this child and love this child and kiss this child. It's on the parent. It's the only thing you really can do. There's no formula. The only thing you can do is remember your role in this relationship with your heavenly father. And if you don't remember what it is, Isaiah 41, verse 10 is a great place to go to remember. It starts with those same words that the angel told Gabriel. Do not fear. Why? For I'm with you. Do not be afraid. Because in disorientation, a lot of fear. For I'm your God and I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. It's God's job to do the work in us. And God didn't look at the people and say, finally, they finally did it. They got their act together. Now's the time. Everybody, send Jesus. And there's no formula you'll do either. But the grace of God sees you and he'll hold you with his righteous right hand. I would like to hold Javi the whole time, but I'm going to pass him off just in case he does start crying. Thank you, Destiny. So I'd like us to close our time together. If you have anything in your hands, just put it to your side. And I, I want you just to, we're going to go back to where we started. I want you to learn how to fight silence with silence. Can you do that with me for a minute? Just for a minute, I want to be that priest who's going to pull you close and not say a word. And you're just, might even feel a little awkward. I don't know about you, I have a love-hate relationship with silence, mostly hate. I train leaders how to not let there be awkward silence in life groups or services or even in conversations. But I've been learning a lot about silence lately. This is what I've been learning. In silence, you can't do anything. You don't pray. I'm not talking about waiting on God for him to tell me something. I'm talking about literally sitting in silence, not doing not performing. You just are. Because in silence, you're reminded, God loves me in spite of me. He really enjoys me, not because of what I say or do or what I don't say or don't do. I'm just his child. Silence reminds you, it's his job to hold you fast. So I'm going to set a timer here for 30 seconds. I want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to sit in complete silence for 30 seconds, index your heart towards God. And it's not so he can speak. It's just that you are with him in this moment. Amen. How'd that go for you? If you're anything like most humans, you probably had a lot of distracting thoughts. Everything you had forgotten about came to mind in that moment. That's what happened to me even. That's what happens a lot. But I try to do this consistently. I'll even put this into my schedule just 30 seconds in between meetings. So I just pause and go, I'm not what I do or how people perceive me today. I'm just a child of God. 
So I want you to do it again. It's a practice. I'm not trying to do this just to kind of give you some quick peace real quick. I'm like just practicing fighting your silence with silence. So I just want you to, again, close your eyes and just let him love you for 30 seconds. Once again, you might think, I didn't really feel anything. And that's okay. It's part of it. This is where you just bring your nothingness and say, God, I've got nothing. I'm just like Javi. I'm just, this is my childlikeness, and I just need you to come and I need you to hold me. So we're going to do it one more final time. I want you just to sit for 30 seconds. And then James Mark and the team are going to start singing a song. It's, a, it's an old hymn that was actually written when someone who gave their life to Jesus started to worry that there's no way they would continue for the rest of their life following God. And they shared that worry with a worship leader. And a worship leader wrote this song in response to remind them it was not their job. It was God's job to hold them to the end. So would you close your eyes one final time? Let's just practice being silent. Just indexing your heart towards God. Just baby Javi. You're just with God. Stay in this moment. Don't move. Just sit. Remind yourself of who God is to you.